Well, good morning, friends. How are we doing? We are in the, hey, hey, all right, we're in the This is the Life series. We're talking about what a life marked by wisdom looks like. And I will tell you, the attribute we're talking about today um, is one that I think I need to be reminded of more than any other that exists in the character and nature of God that because God is the fullness of wisdom should be present in those that seek more of him. Today we're talking about goodness and the goodness of God. I'm going to tell you, most of us don't struggle with the idea that God exists, but we do struggle with the idea that God is good. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves more and more all the time uh, of who he is. In fact, there's a statement that was made uh, by a gentleman uh, some years ago and trying to comfort his people about 100 years ago. And he just said, listen, I, I want to confess, if God would give me all of his omnipotence or all his power in 24 hours, uh, you would not believe how many changes I would make. You ever felt like that, right? If God just gave you license to do whatever it is that he could do, you make a ton of changes. And that's just normal and natural for us to think that way. But I would come back around that and say what this gentleman said, which is, but if God gave me all of his wisdom, I wouldn't change a thing. There's a, a, a verse in the scripture that says that just as the heavens, uh, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts higher than my thoughts, and his ways are not my ways. And I will tell you that's good, because we serve a good, good father. We serve a God who is defined by goodness. When he wants to show you his glory, he shows you his goodness. And so today we're going to see if we seek more of him, more of that will be evident in us. So if I took you back to a particular date in history, November 6, 2010, you might not think of it as a significant day. Uh, you wouldn't have marked it in any way that is especially unique, and that's probably all right and good. You certainly shouldn't just because of what I'm about to tell you. But November 6, 2010 was a day that a little movie called A Family Thanksgiving was released. It was a movie about an unmarried lawyer and a genie who um, would eventually bring changes to the entire situation. It was the beginning of what we now commonly call the Hallmark movie series. Uh, there have since been 232 of those particular movies made. And if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Uh, just, this is crazy, okay? I'm just going to watch. I want to show you this. Look at this picture right here. Do you think they've got a formula that they're kind of sticking with? Those are all different Hallmark movies. And, uh, and so just last week, it's crazy. <laughs> just last week, we, uh, we started Hallmark's Countdown to Christmas, which is, uh, I think, showing all 232 of them over uh, this period of time. If you drop it on the Wagner household where there are a number of young ladies, uh, they have a tendency to turn these things on and watch them. And no matter what movie it is, I can walk in about three quarters of the way through, through and be completely caught up in like 30 seconds. These movies are, uh, are not known for their great acting or their great you know, film editing. They're not known for their great scripting. But there is a reason they're beloved. You know that the Hallmark movies uh, are consistently the highest rated shows on cable television for any program that's not news or sports. It's the number, watched thing, number one watched thing on cable television besides news and sports. Why is that? I think it's because of what happens in a Hallmark movie. It, it's... It's um, what a group of friends that I know call Hallmark Town. Hallmark Town is a place where um, you know, families love one another. They take in strangers, and they're kind. It's kind of serendipitous, you know? And, and a little bit of what we all long for 
to be real in our life that has a lot of chaos. We wish there was some genie that could show up and would resolve the whole story. There is, in the Hallmark movies, when a boy meets a girl, he doesn't immediately try and get her in the sack or, or, or run have a sexual relationship with her. In fact, sometimes it's like they don't even think about that. There's a wholesomeness to it that I think appeals to our nature. You might say goodness. Now, the movies themselves, we might mock and say aren't good. But some of the ideas that are in there, especially this time of year, we long for. The countdown to Christmas. Can I just say this? There's going to be a resolving of this story. Some of you don't like the script that you're living in. Some of you guys don't necessarily like um, the storyline that you're a part of. But there's not a genie, but there is a God. And this whole thing is going to resolve. And if you understand history through the lens of God's divine direction... You might want to change the next 24 hours if you had all the power, but if you had all the wisdom, you would see his goodness in it. We're going to talk about goodness and how it is an attribute of God and how because we're wisdom seekers, it ought to be more consistently true of us. A a, a verse that we've quoted almost every time um, that we've been talking about this idea of the, the life of wisdom or this is the life the life filled with these characteristics that are beautiful and good, um, we've quoted it. It's, it's Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs 1, 7, it just says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear there, again, we've said it a bunch, is not this idea that we're scared of God, but that we're so respectful of him, we see so much of his beauty and his goodness and his rightness that we're scared, we're horrified at the thought that we wouldn't have more of God in our life. And it's fools that despise wisdom and instruction because this book, which gives us wisdom and instruction, is a revelation from God which tells us more of his character and his ways. And the more we know of God's character and ways, the more we learn of his good. And therefore, the more we should love him. I've said it here a bunch, and that is that when we don't want to know more of God, I doubt if we really know him at all. And so today I want to remind you of the goodness of God. I want to remind you that as you seek more of him, more of that goodness um, ought to be emanating from your life. We don't believe that we have faith in God and so that changes God to do what we want that we think is good. No, we have a faith that what God does is good. And so we trust him. Even in a world that's sometimes defined by the kind of horrors that we've experienced as a body this week, we've buried two infants this week that are part of our Watermark family. We've um, heard about heartache that happens in homes and um, diagnoses that aren't good. And we know there's been layoffs in our community and our family. And we're like, come on, God, what's going on? And we need to be reminded of the goodness of God. It's one of the things that I uh, do consistently. I want to just take you to um, you know, Psalm 34 because as, as, I, as I look at Psalm 34 and we talk about how... Um, those scriptures are what gives us wisdom and instruction. It's one of those Psalms as there's many places in scripture that remind us of the character and nature of God. And I would tell you that every single sin that I commit, and I think every single sin that any of us commits is always tied to our lack of understanding of the goodness of God. Because when we don't understand that God's good, we lean on our own understanding and what we think is good. And when we lean on our own understanding and don't in all our ways acknowledge him, it's less than God. And when you get less than God, It's not great. In fact, Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book, God is not great. 
is a guy who I've been in a room where discussions have been happening with him about evidences for um, God being great and God being good. And, and he's seen um, rational defenses of a faith that gives us hope in the midst of a world that is not the world that we all want. Hitchens, though, says, no, listen, guys, I acknowledge that your discussions about who God is is congruent and clear and makes sense, but I reject the God of the Bible as a possibility. And because I reject the, the God of the Bible as a possibility, I say God is not great, which is, I agree with Hitchens. If the Bible is God, if God that is revealed in the scriptures is not God, then God is not good and God is not great because only God as he's revealed in the scripture is good. In fact, he's great and he's glorious and you should want more of him. Psalm 34 verse one is just the psalmist's way of saying, this world is crazy and so I sometimes forget that he's good and I've got to remind myself. And so he says in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. Bless means I will speak well of. I'm gonna speak well of God because when I start to tell myself that God's not good, his word's not true, and disobeying him's not that big a deal, I'm gonna go lots of different directions that aren't gonna be good for me. So my mouth shall continually praise you. My soul will boast in my God, the psalmist says. The humble, the people that don't tell God who he is but listen to God and watch how God unfolds himself in history will rejoice. Psalm 34 verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's why we come together and we sing songs about the goodness of God so that we would have our hearts strengthened so we wouldn't leave him. The psalmist now speaks First person, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. He speaks corporately in verse five. The body looked to him and they were radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried back to the individual and the Lord heard him and saved him of all his troubles. Verse seven is true. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. What kind of God wouldn't do that? And then verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's why you see in Proverbs these verses, Proverbs eleven twenty seven: he who diligently seeks good seeks favor. Because if you seek God, you seek good. If you seek good, you seek God. But he who seeks evil, you're going to get evil. You're going to get less than good, less than great, less than God. Anything less than God and good is not true goodness. Proverbs 12, verse 2, a good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he, he condemns a man who devises evil. What is a good man? A good man is a man who seeks the goodness of God. I'm going to tell you a little bit later, we're never good enough for God to accept us, but the good God makes provision for us so that we can have relationship with him and experience his good. And so the, the prophet Jeremiah begs with people. He says, stand by the way and see and ask for the ancient past in Jeremiah 6, 16, where the good way is and walk in it. That's what God wants us to do, to walk in it. The psalmist in Psalm 84 says, listen, man, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. He goes on to say, I'd rather spend one day in the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the, a thousand days in the middle of the tents of the wicked. Why? Because God is a sun and a shield. He gives light and life. He gives protection. He gives grace and glory. He gives you what you don't deserve. And he restores what sin has lost. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How blessed is the man who trusts in this God. 
who fears him and doesn't want to lose any intimacy with him. Psalm 1611 says, basically, you will make known to me the path of life, the good life. This is the life, the path that God calls me on. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. That's a good God, if that's true. Why wouldn't we want more of him? And here's how we get more of him. Watch this. Proverbs 2 begs us to dive in with him. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 20. Watch, my son, if you'll just receive my words and if you'll treasure my commandments within you, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, if you cry for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek for her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then, then you will discern the fear of the Lord, and you'll discover more of the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, the proverb says. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. In verse 7, it goes on to say, he stores up wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. He guards the paths of justice. He preserves the way of his godly ones. And then look at verse 10. Verse 9, rather. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity, and every good course. Goodness will mark your life. But it doesn't come just because you try and be good. It comes when you seek more of God. I mean, if you want to be good, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the goodness will be added to you. God longs for us to be marked by the thing which most identifies him. In fact, if you kept reading down, reading down through Proverbs chapter 2 and making your way through, it says, wisdom will enter your heart, verse 10. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you, verse 11. Understanding will watch over you. It will deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse, perverted, destructive things. It'll keep you from the mouth of the adulteress. Adulteress isn't just a woman who seduces you into her bed. It's, it's the liar who whispers Sweet promises that lead to death, that if you embrace those lies, it will not go well with you. And so verse 20 says, if you'll just listen to wisdom, you will walk in the way of goodness. You'll walk with good men. Men who walk with God walk with goodness. It's what God wants us to understand. When Moses was trying to um, be God's man and deliver the people out of oppression and bondage and slavery to the goodness and the promise that God called them to, he said, God, I want to know more of what you, um, who you are, because if I'm going to lead people, I need to know more of who you are. And so God says, in response to Moses in, in Exodus 33, 18, where he says, I, show me more of your glory. God says this, I myself will make all my goodness passed before you. Do you hear that? When Moses asked for God's glory to be revealed, he showed him his goodness. Because God's glory is in his goodness. We serve a good father. And it's why you want to sit at his feet and listen to him and learn from him. He will admonish us. He does discipline and reprove those that are his, but it's because he cares for us. It's so interesting how when you're a child, you just don't think your parents have got your best interest in mind. I, I think of you know, um, numerous stories in the life of my relationship with my kids. I think about my son Cooper when he was eight, roughly, right in there. I, I watched him, and he was just walking in a way that an eight-year-old is not supposed to walk. 
And I go, Coop, what's going on? He said, ah, nothing, dad, nothing. I go, no, 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 something isn't right. You weren't created to walk with a limp. And so I, I took his shoe, I took his sock off, and I looked, and man, there wasn't just a little splinter. There was one of those, you know, you know like a broken off toothpick size splinter that was darkening in his foot. And I just go, oh man, we got to deal with that. And he's like, no, we're not going to deal with that. We're going to deal with that by putting the sock back on, the shoe back on, you know, and we're going to limp. That's how we're going to go through life. I don't really care if it gets infected. I don't care if it gets gangrenous. Cut it off at the knee. We're not dealing with a splinter. <laughs> well, a good father goes, no, we're going to deal with that. And after reasoning didn't work, I, I basically grabbed him. I said, sweetie, got my wife. I said, we're going to deal with this. And I could just see him like, oh no. I remember physically laying on top of him and pinning him down. <laughs> if there was a CBS person within a thousand yards, they were not doing their job because there was a death scream that was emanating from our house. And I remember having all my weight on him and grabbing his foot and I go, okay, babe, you know, you, you're going to dig into that thing or are you going to grab the foot? And, and you know, I can remember him laying there going, you are so mean. And he kept screaming, you know, and every now and then one of the other siblings would kind of walk in and look inside the torture chamber. Like, should we run now for the neighbors before we're next in there? But with just a little bit of work, I mean, a good father was there and I just, you know, we took a little needle in the tweezers and we got that thing out. And he just thanked us. Sock went on, shoe went back on. He's running without a limp. I'm just like that. I think I've shared with you before the Jesus film, which is the most watched movie in history that's been translated into more languages than any other movie in history, is often shown in cultures that don't know the Jesus story. And they've talked about Jesus, but then they show them the historical narrative of who Jesus was, this child born into disadvantage and poverty and in oppression, who doesn't hate, though he was sought after and tried to be, was tried to be destroyed by a wicked despot. But no, he learns to love. And in fact, he uses his resources and his life to bring blessing and healing to others. He speaks truth to that power. He sets captives free. He reverses the effects of the fall. Everything that these people often who are watching this, who live in the midst of oppression and darkness and poverty, they're watching this and they're hearing that this isn't just some movie. This is history and a narrative that played out before them and they're watching, but they see not just long into the story that all of a sudden one of his friends betrays him. And they see that in the midst of the betrayal that he's now taken captive and they see him taken captive and beaten and they see an insecure ruler sentence him to death because he wants to appease the people. And when they watch Jesus beaten and bloodied and battered, sentenced to death, and he starts to carry that cross, there have been numerous times in the showing of the Jesus film where people attack the screen and they throw rocks at the screen and they see that the movie's still being projected and then they'll try and shut down the projector because they want to stop history. Because there's no way we can let this story go to a cross. But what they don't know is that cross in that story was not the end of the story, that it's going to resolve. There is a resurrection. And that that cross, which looked like the most evil thing that they could imagine in history, was part of the goodness of God, showing his love for them and restoring to them the peace that had been lost because of their sin. How many of us are like that? We just start to throw rocks at the screen and we try and stop the movie because we don't like this particular scene, but we, we, we forget that the director is good. And it's not just some serendipitous, poorly written novel. This is the very workings of God in our life and in history. And there's a cross in the middle of it to remind us 
that he's good and we should walk with him. Romans 12 talks about us understanding who God is and how we should respond. It says, therefore, in Romans 12, 1, which is like, therefore, in light of the cross, that's what Romans 1 through 11 is all about, in light of who God is and what he's done, that he's demonstrated his kindness towards you and that while you're still sinners, Christ died for you. Therefore, I urge you to present your bodies today as living and holy sacrifices, the life which you now live in the flesh you should live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and delivered himself up for you. This God you, you, should, you should serve. You should, you should make your spiritual service of worship your life. It's the only right way to respond to a God who's given his Son for you. And then it says this, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're mentally ill when you don't love more of God. And let your mind be corrected be transformed by the story of the goodness of God. And then it says, you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now listen, I, I quoted this verse, I memorized this verse. For a long time, I didn't understand that it wasn't saying, hey, prove that you're good and prove that you're acceptable and prove that you're perfect to this holy God who died for you. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is when you walk with God and your mind is no longer deceived, but it's filled with wisdom. And you see the love and the goodness of God, and so therefore you follow him, and he informs your steps, and you lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways you acknowledge him. Your life will prove out that that life is the better way. It's the acceptable life to the human condition. It's the good life to the human condition. It's the perfect way to live in this world. You grieve, but not of the, as those who have no hope. That's Romans 12 too. It's the good life. People ought to look at our lives as Christians and go, I don't like your doctrine. I don't like this thing called sin. I don't like this idea that I'm, I'm, I'm accountable to a creator, but I cannot argue with your goodness. Your families are different, man. The way you work through conflict is different. The way you date is different. The way you love the oppressed and the poor is different. It's just, it's good. I don't much like Christian doctrine, but man, I tell you what, our community could use more Christians. It's really what happens. In fact, in Psalm 128, there is um, a whole description of this. Psalm 128 has um, the idea that this is how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who, who walks in his ways. And it starts talking about this is the good life. And it goes, it ends in that Psalm, down at the very end, it says, indeed, may you see your children's children, which is like, we would love to see more of you longer in the land. May you see the prosperity of your way of living, because it's the good way. Psalm 128 is just saying, that's the way a family should be ordered, the family that looks to and trusts in God. What kind of God do we trust in? When Moses finally got what he asked for, and God said, I'm going to show you my glory, which is my goodness, and he passed by, this is what happened, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It said, here I come, Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, here he comes. He is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness to thousands of generations. He forgives iniquities, transgression, and sin. Yet by no means will he let the guilty go unpunished. God's going to make it right. There's going to be a resolution. Do you guys know this? 
the countdown to Christmas that is the Hallmark movies until it ends with the fullness of goodness coming is kind of what we are. We are God's Hallmark. Okay, so the word Hallmark, it comes from um, what's called the Goldsmith Building or the Goldsmith Livery in London, England. It's the longest operating building that we know of in, in the West. It's, um, it's been around since like 1333. And the Goldsmith Livery, the Goldsmith Building, was a place where they were forming the best, purest gold and the greatest art and craftsmanship and beauty and uh, workmanship would come out of the Goldsmith Hall. And so when they, the owners of the livery and all the businesses that were in there would say, yes, that's pure enough gold and that's beautiful enough work, it would have a stamp put on it, a Goldsmith Hall mark. And everybody knew where it came from because that hall mark was on it. And they knew it was the best work and the most beauty that could be on earth at this time. That was the idea. That's where Hallmark came from. And that's what God says we should be. We should be the Hallmark of God. Until that day that God resolves this world and beauty is everywhere. Do you know this? That, that heaven is not a place we're going to. Biblically, there is no heaven being built out there in the nether regions right now that one day God will draw us up to. This earth is heaven. God's plan is that this will be a new heavens and a new earth. He'll resolve this thing. There's going to be an extreme earth makeover. Do y'all know this? This is your Bible. And on this earth, things will be as they should be. There won't just be a deposit, a shadow of the coming kingdom of God. There will be the very presence of God here on earth. Let me just say this to you. Where the kingdom of God is, there is goodness. And where the Christian is, there should be more of the kingdom of God. This is, this, is a, this is a point for us this morning. Where the kingdom of God is, where heaven is, there is goodness. And on earth one day, God's going to take away all the effects of sin and all the effects of the fall, and he's going to deal with all the tenants that are not operating in the way that they should. He's even going to meet people who right now are a shadow of their citizenship in heaven. He's going to finish the good work which he's begun in us, but his plan is for right now us to be an expression of God's love and goodness on an earth that is not yet resolved. If you're not good, you're not Christian. Or at least you're a non-fruit-bearing Christian. Heaven is going to be the goodness of God reestablished on earth. It's going to be better than Eden because Eden was just a picture of what it was like in the presence of God, filled with perfection and men that loved and enjoyed God. But the new heavens and the new earth right here, all around us, it's all going to be remade and it won't be just a place where there are people who know God by faith. They're going to know God, all of us, fully. He's going to completely have dealt with sin, remove sin from us and sinners from the face of the earth and the, the earth that we're on, God will dwell with us on it forever. That's the future. That's your Bible. Revelation talks about this in, in, in Revelation 21, 3 and 5. On that day and in that place, the tabernacle of God will be among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Think about this. That's the countdown. We're in the countdown to Revelation 21. That's the countdown to the second Christmas. The countdown to the first Christmas 
was when God came and tabernacled in the person of Jesus and he showed that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He was the goodness of God. He says, to see me is to see God. And I'm going to show you the love of God, that he's going to deal with your sin so you can be reconciled to him. And then he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to be with the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's not heaven. The place is a place where you can find peace and forgiveness so you can be restored to God so some of heaven can be made known on earth until God resolves the story. And he said, I'm going to leave you here. And the works that you've seen me do, which is to love and to bring hope and healing and comfort, you're going to do these same works. In fact, even greater works than these will you do because there's going to be more of you that are related to God by grace through faith. So more of God's goodness will be known on the earth. Christians are the hallmark that are anticipation of what's coming in the countdown to Christmas. Now, I'll just say this real quick. You know, we're not perfect. There's blemishes even in the life of a Christian. But here's one of the things that Christians do that is a mark of God is we're humble people. And so sometimes there are things that we do which aren't good. And so we just go, hey, can I just stop right here and say that wasn't God's work and God's workmanship in my life? It wasn't his beauty that you just experienced? I want to confess. This is one of the things that Christians do. They go, that wasn't beautiful. That wasn't from the throne of heaven. That moment right there wasn't God at work in my life. That was Todd at work in my life. It was wrong. It was hateful. It was motivated by my flesh and by my anger. And I ask your forgiveness and I repent and I make amends. You're not a hypocrite because you sin. You're a hypocrite when you sin and go, that's not sin. That's, 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 it's okay when I do it. It's good. It's good because I'm a Christian. No, no. What's good when you're a Christian is when you act in a way that's non good is you go the word confess means to agree. I agree with God. That wasn't good. And it's beautiful. And you humble yourself. And you forsake. You seek forgiveness. And you restore. Where the kingdom of God is, there is goodness. And where the Christian is, there should be more of the kingdom of God. Uh, I love the quote by Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, you may not know who he is, but he was Hollywood's first madman. All right? And long before Hollywood, he was in England. And thinking the whole theater scene uh, around there. And Oscar Wilde was a guy whose life you don't want to emulate. But um, he said a lot of really winsome things. Almost Mark Twainish. One of the things that he said that I love is he says, some people bring happiness wherever they go. Other people, whenever they go. Right? <laughs> Do you know people like that? You will next Sunday after you've been with your family for three days. Right? <laughs> they leave and you're so happy. Right? But what God says is when you show up at Thanksgiving tables, there ought to be just a hallmark of goodness and people should be glad that a Christian was there. There's kindness, there's selflessness, there's service, there's thanksgiving, there's subjection to one another in love. You speak with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and there's just a goodness. And it's just a countdown to the fullness of what God intends as we give thanksgiving continually on earth and heaven. And we enjoy him. Augustine said, if we live good lives, the times are also good. As we are, such are the times. Christian, we are a stamp of God's goodness on earth. I'm going to give you something here. I'm going to take a little bit of time just teaching this point. I'm going to tell you, goodness is four things. Goodness is a person. Goodness is a gift. Goodness is a fruit. And goodness is the goal of the faithful. So let me just walk you through these. Goodness is a person. 
Um, one of my favorite little interchanges in all the scriptures is when Jesus meets this rich young ruler. The rich young ruler walks up to him, and, um, and Jesus was getting ready to go on a journey, and here comes this guy, and he's going to be very civil, and he's going to be very polite, and he's going to walk up, and he's going to say, good rabbi or good teacher. Uh, how might I have eternal life? Which is a question that's, that both is noble in its uh, approach or, or humble in its approach and, and, and certainly noble in its quest. And you would think that Jesus is about to respond by saying, man, what a, what a, you're on your knees, you're calling me good. And the word he used for good was intrinsically good, holistically good, completely good. And you're calling me teacher. And so he's saying, perfect teacher. How would I have eternal life? And Jesus says something really interesting. He says, why do you call me good? Nobody is good except God alone. There's nobody holistically and intrinsically good except God alone. So you just came up to me. You want to know how to have eternal life. And you called me good. Why do you call me good? Because God alone is good, which means you're not good. And what Jesus is really in effect saying, he never denies that he's good. He just says, do you know who you're talking to? Because if you know that I'm good, you know that you're less than that. You're non-good. And so you would look to me to give you what you could never get, and I would only give to you if I was good. The way that Jesus teaches this is by saying, well, you know the commandments. How good are you? You know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father. He just ticks off kind of the last five of the, of the, of the Ten Commandments, and the guy says, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. This guy wasn't around, obviously, when Jesus walked him through the stone of the mount where he said, if you look at a brother with disdain or hatred, then you've murdered. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you're an adulterer, and so on and so on and so on. But Jesus saw this guy who had the appearance of good, though he wasn't really good, but the guy didn't know he wasn't really good, so he thought... He was doing everything he needed to do to be connected with the good God. And so what Jesus is going to do right here is show him that you might be keeping the superficial elements of the law, but in your heart, you love something more than God, which is the first commandment that you should not break. And so to expose to this guy that he has idolatry and he loves something more than God, which is to say he loves something more than good, he says, I'll tell you what you need to do. Go sell everything. Because you just acknowledge that I am the intrinsically perfect and beautiful and glorious one. So go sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you've got treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Come be with me, the good one, the one who is the author and perfecter of life, and you'll have eternal life. And the guy looked at him and was sad and was grieving because he had much property that he loved and was attached to and that was his God, and he didn't want to leave his God because he thought that God was his good, and so he didn't want the God who was good. Do you see what Jesus did there? Goodness is a person. It's God. And Jesus is saying, you're not like me. And so because you're not like me, you can't have what only I, the eternally sufficient one, can give. The way you're going to get it is by not just bowing ceremoniously, not by just singing songs, holy, 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 you're good, good, good father, but by knowing that I'm holy and know that you're not. And here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to go to your cross. I'm going to show you my kindness and my love. I love this about God. When you, you think about the slow to anger God, in Eden, God cursed the ground, right? When, when Adam and Eve left God and worshiped themselves or worshiped something less than God, God cursed the ground saying, you don't want me to tend your garden? You don't want me to be the one who, who uh, creates for you your reality? Then your reality is going to be what your reality is. And your reality is going to be defined by 
hard grounds, hard relationships and thorns. So God cursed the ground with thorns because of our sin. On the cross, Jesus wore our crown of thorns on his head, which means that the glory of God is the goodness of him taking our curse and wearing it on his head because he loves us. What kind of God would wear our curse so that he could give loving kindness to thousands and still judge the wicked? The answer, an unspeakably good father in God. You don't throw rocks at that screen. You don't try and stop that movie. You worship him in the direction of his divine glory in the midst of history. And then you participate with him to be all the good that you can so that others might see your good works and go, where are you from? Where is this craftsmanship of humanity? This hallmark of human nature, where does it come from? And we say the goldsmith shop of heaven's redemptive work. Goodness is a person. Goodness is a gift. Actually, it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's a gift. Isaiah 43 says this. It, um, a long time ago, I heard a guy say this statement. He, he, I wish I had said it, but he was describing what he found in Isaiah 43. And the statement is this. Satan knows your name, right? He knows my name is Todd, but he calls me by my sin. You're a lust bucket. You're prideful. You're arrogant. You're inconsistent. Um, you're, 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 you're a person who says one thing and does another, right? Satan reminds me that he's an accuser and he just always labels me by my sin. God knows my sin, but he calls me by my name. And he says, Todd, are you weary and heavy laden? Come. Isaiah 43, watch. Now says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do, do, you, do not fear, for I've redeemed you, Todd. Redeemed you in your sin. I know all about it. I've called you by your name and your mind. When you pass through the waters of judgment, I will be with you. And through the rivers of, of, of temptation and life, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Why? Because I'm your God and I'm good. I'm the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And you're mine. I don't call you by your sin. I call you by your name. Come to me and I will give you rest. Man, what a good God. Goodness is a person, goodness is a gift, and, and goodness is a fruit, right? A, a, a fruit. Um, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following, it says this, but the fruit, all right, of the Spirit, that's singular. There's not a, nine different fruits. There's an infinite number of things that are the fullness of the beauty of God in his way. And when the Spirit of God is present, all these things are present. And the way you know you're filled with the Spirit is what you're doing right there is love, biblical love. Not just like do whatever you want love, but biblical love that doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices always with the truth, that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The love that never fails, even though it does at times bring about appropriate consequences to remove the limp. But when God is present, love is present. Joy is present. Peace is present. Patience. Don't pray for patience. It's, I'm not going to scold you if you go, God, just please let me be more patient. But here's a more biblical prayer. God, 
let me now not lean on my own understanding, but let the love of Christ, let the spirit, the loving kindness of God, let that be evident in me. Okay, so, so be angry and don't sin. There, there should be in you a moral indignation towards what's not right, but you're never controlled by anger. You're always controlled by the spirit. And there's a sense of patience even in the midst of this kindness. And when people watch you be just and kind, they go, that is just good. It's just good. It's what a faithful man does is a gentleness and a self-control. Against such things, there is no law. In other words, we don't say, hey, listen, you can only be patient here 12 hours a day. After that, we don't put up with 12 hours and one minute of patience. We don't want that much kingdom of godness here. We're going to legislate against it, right? No, we don't limit the amount of love. Now, we pervert love and destroy love and distort love. One of the things that's true in our culture is we call evil good and good evil. But people who are filled with the Spirit don't. It's part of the goodness of God that you speak truth, people. I love the statement by Richard Sibbs. He's the one that, a pastor hundreds of years ago, and he just said this, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. What a good God. What a good God. And the fruit of God should be in our life. And so, as it says later in Galatians, so then while we still have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's a fruit of God. When, when you're not being good, you're not being Christian. Or at least you're being a non-fruit-bearing one. You're grieving the spirit and quenching the spirit. Goodness is a person. It's Jesus. It's God. It's a gift. He gives us his goodness. It's imputed upon us. He calls us by name and he gives us the goodness of Christ. He makes him who's rich to become poor on our behalf that we don't become the righteousness of God in him, the scripture says, and, and then it's a fruit of our relationship with him. If there's goodness in me, it's Jesus. It's our goal. It's the last thing. It's the goal of the faithful to be more of that. Proverbs eleven twenty three: the desire of the righteous is only good. But the expectation of the wicked is to perish. We've said this already. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for goodness, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should make it our goal to be more of the hallmark of God. And that happens as we depend more on him. And so in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, it says, instruct those who are rich in this present world to not be conceited or to fix their hope on any uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them towards goodness, instruct them to do good, to be rich in goodness, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. It's what we do. We remind each other that that's what we're doing. It's how we take hold, it says. We store up for ourselves at the very end of this, um, you know, store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, and we take hold of that which is life indeed in verse 19. So it's a person, it's a gift, it's a fruit, and it's our goal that we might excel still more in letting more of the Spirit of God be present in us. And it's true, when, when Christ is present, the light of goodness will eventually overwhelm and replace the darkness of sin. When Christ is in us, the, the, the presence of light and his goodness 
overwhelms and replaces the darkness of sin. There's a renewal that should happen within us and more glory of, of who Jesus wants us to be. It, it's being restored. He gives grace and then he restores glory. That's what God does. Let me just introduce you to a friend of mine. This is my friend Mark, um, Mark Carter. Mark went into juvie when he was nine years old. But look at the smile on this kid. When he was nine years old, he got in the juvenile system and he was in and out of that until he was not in the juvie system anymore. He was in the big system and he spent more than half of his life in jail. He got out when he was 48 years old and he swore to himself at some point, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life behind bars. And so God set him free from the captivity to his flesh and sin. When he was 15, he got shot in the jaw and the stomach. He was stealing a stereo. And to this day, he's got major effects from that gunshot wound and, and, and a major protrusion in his abdomen that we're, we're trying to figure out how to help him deal with that. And I'll tell you why we're loving on Mark, because Mark doesn't ever complain. You never hear him complain about a single solitary thing, even though he's, he's got thyroid issues, he's got diabetes, he's got effects from his own sin that he carries with him. He spent half his life in jail. He lives right now um, down at Bonton Farms, and he farms down there a little bit during the day. And at night, at night, he takes care of a property that, that we have been given the privilege to store together. Mark, who used to be a drug-dealing prison baller, is now member number one of Watermark South Dallas. What is Pearl C. Anderson? Well, let me just show you a little video. Pearl C. Anderson is a piece of property that uh, a friend of ours, a member of our body, became aware that um, has been a, a mothballed school that Dallas Independent School District has had for seven years that went to a public auction that we bid on. And God just so had it that we were the only bidder. And so for $211,000, we bought nine acres of land and 200,000 square feet of usable space. And we've been working in South Dallas for the last decade plus. We, we have members who have uh, started um, a ministry down there to um, kids that wash out of DISD and, and um, need to get their high school education, and so we're giving it to them. We have um, our, a member who started a ministry called Second Saturday, which is um, members of our body spend the second Saturday of every month down there serving in that community. And we started 2S Industries, which is a company by men like Mark and others that are, uh, have been incarcerated and, and, and helping restore them and giving them employment. 2S uh, Industries is actually the group that we're using to remediate and start to clean up that school, which you can see it needs some cleaning. We had planned to tell you about that facility this weekend, this, this particular week. A couple of news media outlets felt like they wanted to try and make a story out of something, and so they pushed the information out there a little bit earlier. But man, we're so humbled that a place that we've already been at work, we can go to work deeper still. We always believe that more of Jesus' church will displace more of the darkness. And I'm going to tell you something. There's plenty of darkness that needs to be displaced. This particular part of Dallas, it's got a 90% single-parent home rate. 90% um, of the kids that are down there are on free school lunches. There's a 17% unemployment rate. It's the highest incarceration rate of any zip code in the Dallas area. The average median income uh, of South Dallas is at or below the very level of poverty. 40% poverty rate in that city, part of the city. And it needs more of Jesus' church. We're so grateful for people that have already been working there in South Dallas. The light of Christ has already been there, but man, it sounds like they could use some help, just like I would say we could use some help right here in North Dallas. May more of Jesus' church show up here, but gang, we're going to get a chance to steward our resources, our time, our talents, make new neighbors, grow his church, 
with people in that community and be a part of that community and more of the goodness that God wants in South Dallas. I don't know if you heard or not, but this particular um, week we were just named the best place to work in Dallas, which I, I just, I will tell you that. I mean, I, I, I stood up there and I just, I, I, for, for seven years in a row, we were number two. And, and so I spoke to the business community. I said, I need to ask your forgiveness because if we were who God wants us to be, we'd be the best place to work for the last eight years, not just this year. But I don't really care about being the best place to work as much as I care about this being the best city to live. And that's why we're going to go to work to make another place in our town a little bit better to live. I think North Dallas and South Dallas, where we've already been there, and East and North Dallas and Frisco and Plano are a little bit better because you're there. Jesus' church, not Watermark. Watermark is an expression of the kingdom of God. And we're going to take it. And we're going to share it. And that really kind of gets me to the last thing I just want to say. I just want to say thank you to you. Because God's goodness is his glory and our good works cause more glory to be given to him. This is Matthew 5, 17. Let others see your good works and they will glorify your father in heaven. And I want to tell you, um, I see your good works. I see what you're up to. I see what you're doing. This week, I need to ask my staff's forgiveness because I had asked my whole staff if um, they would just make some observations about the things they've seen just in the last several weeks and just shoot me some stories of the goodness that's happening in our body. And they sent me back pages, literally single spaced right here, just pasted, cut and pasted together of things that they watch you do that makes them want more of the God who is so good because the hallmark of God's kindness is made evident through you. And I got to ask their forgiveness because I'm not going to read them all now that I've collected them and just had my heart strengthened. I'm going to read one that I got just as an example, actually just the week before from my friend Ashley Gonzalez, who's a member of our Fort Worth campus. And she and her husband, Jared, shot me an email. And this is what the email says. This is part of, I want to say, there's so many stories like this that are in here of things that you're doing. And I just want to say, keep being God's hallmark. Thank you, church for inspiring me, faithful ones, living the life of glory and selflessness and being rich in good works. Ashley wrote me and she said, Ted, hi, from Fort Worth. My name is Ashley. And Jared and I have been attending Watermark Fort Worth and members for a couple of the past three years. I want to let you know that we're grateful to this body because it's helped us change the course of our lives. About two years ago, Todd, you taught a message called What a Compassionate God Wants You to Consider as Your Next Yes. We went home after church and my Jesus-loving husband immediately looked into our guest bedroom and said, well, we've got an extra room we're not using. I quickly rejected the idea I'm reading. I like my peaceful newlywed life. Well, we got an extra room, but, but uh, we've only been married for three months and I'm not ready to give up our honeymoon. Well, long story short, the Lord quickly changed my heart and we went through the process to become foster parents. And a year ago, Todd, we became foster parents. I, I, told, I told God that I was going to do it, but only if he gave me just one kid, and that kid had to be a baby. So we sent up a nursery, we bought some infant clothes, and we waited. Four days before Christmas, I got a call. They said, we've got three toddlers, one and two and four that are siblings, and they needed home immediately. I said, I told you I would take one. They said, we've got three children a one and a two and a four-year-old, and they need a home. Three hours later, four days before Christmas, 
the young two showed up, and then a month later, we took their older sister, and we have fallen in love with them. And she sent me this picture. And she just said, listen, it looks like potentially the tragedy of parental termination, termination, permanent, termination of parental rights may come. And she says, we're making plans to make this their forever home. Ashley's pregnant with a biological child due in March. And so just a year plus after they get married, because they're full of the goodness of God, they're going to be parents of potentially four children. And don't you just watch that and just go, man. Church, I want to tell you, I've said this before. Right now, there are more children that are waiting to be placed in homes, children that are a crisis, that our world that doesn't even know what, what evil always is. Our world says, this is so evil, we can't let them there. There are kids waiting for good homes. And, and right now, there's more kids waiting than homes, waiting to receive them. That's the message that Ashley and Jared heard, and they opened up their home. And then in the midst of that, you know, our goal and our prayer has been that there would be more homes waiting than there are children, because we're increasingly ministering in communities, in our community, and in our lives, where kids are in homes already that prosper. I hope that when CPS finds a child with a need, that we, they find a church with a heart that's ready. And I hope when CPS takes children from people that they go, hey, these people don't want your children for good. If you want your children back, you need to get to Watermark because they teach family restitution classes as acquired by the court, and they're gonna help you get your life back in line and help you recover from your addictions and help you learn to be repented yourself because they want your home to be a place of blessing for your children. If you want your kids back, go get discipled by these people. That's the goodness of God. And I see so many stories, not just in the foster care and adoption services system, but I watch the way you're mentoring. I watch the way you're sharing, caring for each other in the midst of hardship. And it is good. And when people see it, they're going to want to know more of our God because we're his hallmark. So keep it up, church. Keep it up. Father, I thank you for the goodness that is in this place and for the love of Christ that is in this place. Would you help us, Father, to make it um, our goal to be more faithful so that we would bear more of your fruit so that the gift of your goodness which is an expression of your personage, is renowned on this earth. I thank you for this body and the so many faithful people that are here that are about kingdom work. And Lord, we know where your kingdom is, there is goodness, and where your church is, there should be more of the kingdom of God. So bring it to us, Lord. You've told us where we'll find it if we diligently seek for it as silver and hunt for it as a treasure. It is the way of wisdom. It is the way of Jesus. So help us to seek you that we may be more of him. In Christ's name, amen.